Welcome to the Melrose Place cast. My name is Tej. I'm a Melrose Place super fan going back decades, and I'm here to convince my friend Mary that this show counts as high art for the generations worthy of literary praise. And I'm Mary, and I'm here to convince my friend Tej that it's a trashy soap opera, and that's okay. Join us on our very, very long journey from season one, episode one, pilot, to season seven, episode 35, Asses to Ashes. Oh, good news, Mary. There's the reboot season that we get to watch as well. What? And Models Inc., the spinoff. There's a spinoff. And we should probably review Beverly Hills 90210 when that's all done. Wasn't that on before this? Why would we do. Hello, and welcome to the Melrose Place cast. Today, we're doing a season one review. Ooh, very exclusive. I'm Mary. And I teach. <laughs> Mary, you missed the point of the exclusive. I did? Here's the thing. I listened to the other three Melrose Place podcasts, and as far as I can tell, none of them did a season one wrap-up. They just uh, they reviewed the season finale. It's almost like oh. they didn't want to stay in season one two extra weeks. <laughs> I can't imagine why they would want to speed away from this. (laughs) Well, this week, instead of we're not going to go through any particular plot points per se. We're not talking about an episode in particular. Instead, we are reviewing the entirety of season one as its own piece of art or trash, depending on your perspective, (laughs) to see how over the arc of it, it holds up. Mary, are you ready? I am. I would like to point out to the listeners that I took no notes for this. This is like my final exam from memory. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> I have I have 35 notes, 35 pages of notes, notes from every episode. Well, for counting previous notes, then I have more notes than you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, can I tell you my first point, Mary? Yes, please. My first point is... As far as why season one counts as high art for the generation, it is she works hard for the money. So hard for it, honey. <laughs> and this is this is the point I'm making. I think as a as a uh, an example of high art for the generations, season one of Melrose Place really captured how young twenty something people, in this case all women, struggle to kind of make it in the big city. And in season one, they did it without resorting to, like, becoming an agent for a drug cartel, uh, bombing for cash, (laughs) harpooning your boyfriend's brother. Like, none of that is here. It's just putting in the, 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 like, elbow grease at work. And I thought there were five good examples of it. The first of which is uh, our good friend Sandy. Oh, Sandy. And I (laughs) thought... You, you have to let the accent fade away from the beginning to the end of her name. Sandy. <laughs> anyway, Sandy's, Sandy's hard work struggling to make it in Hollywood while also holding down a job at, at Shooters, I thought was good, especially I remember when she was talking with Stella and she said, I work at Shooters, but I'm really an actress. And Stella said, well, I'm a waitress and I'm really a waitress. <laughs> But it, it was really highlighting what Sandy had to do to make it in the, in L.A. specifically, especially the episode where the director wanted, made her appear topless. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought Allison, they did a good job of showing how Allison was struggling to juggle life and work 
we came to know Allison as a very committed, hardworking person who would slip up anytime Keith came back. Right. But she was, she was one really conflicted about it and, and wore a lot of guilt about it, but she was putting so much effort in at work that when she devoted time to a boyfriend, it was evident that she was falling behind at work. So I thought Allison was a good example of working hard for the money. <laughs> Amanda's ambition and drive and determination is both impressive and admirable, but also evident throughout the whole uh, 10 episodes she is in. Mm-hmm. I thought Jane technically worked hard for the money. Mm-hmm. We see her working working late at K- once she came over to K Beacon, once K Beacon came in, we see, see Jane working late. Uh, doing designs, working alone while Sydney's out partying with her boss, all of that. And then finally, an example of someone working hard for the money. I'm going to say, I'm going to say it, Sydney Andrews. <laughs> Buying everybody except Jane lunch. <laughs> Going to newspaper stands in person. <laughs> bringing in chocolate donuts with sprinkles. Oh. Oh boy. They really were worth No, I think Melrose Place. Yeah, I think the original intention of Melrose Place was to show a, a, at least a television version of realistic, a realistic ish view of what it was like, you know, essentially for the characters from 90210 when they would graduate, right? And what their, what their life would be like later. I should not the characters from 90210. They were all rich, wealthy kids, but that's a different story. But just, <laughs> you know, further on down the road in LA, what's happening? Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of, can I give you some breaking news on Melrose Place? Oh my God, this makes it even more exclusive. Yes. This is sure to shock the fan base too. Okay. Because, Mary, tell me, what was Beverly Hills 90210 about? It was about affluent high schoolers in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't... Were they... Oh, go ahead. I never watched it other than when they guest starred on Melrose Place. <laughs> At Shakespeare's The Bar. <laughs> I had always understood Beverly Hills to be about high school kids, although I, I clearly knew it ran for 10 seasons, so it, they must have moved on. <laughs> One would hope. But it, I... I'd understood it to be a high school drama, which we got when we kept having three teenagers at the bar and shooters. <laughs> but at some point, Tiffany Amber Thiessen made it to Beverly Hills. Tiffany Amber Thiessen, who was actually Kelly Kapowski, um, <laughs> came into 90210 as a character named Valerie. Mm. Okay. And this, and this is what we learned. Um, she left 90210 in the fall of 1998 and producer, this is, I should say, according to some guy posting on Facebook, um, oh, Aaron Spelling offered her a significant amount of money to bring her character straight over to Melrose Place. And she turned it down. Oh. Okay. But here's what Valerie did. This is what I did not know. Her exit storyline on 90210. <laughs> this, is, this is just not what I expected for 90210. Was the revelation that Valerie had killed her rapist father in self-defense a few years back and covered up his murder to make it look like a suicide. And in an effort to get back at her mom, Abby, who knew about the molesting but did nothing, Valerie began seducing and sleeping with her mom's new fiancé and eventual husband, her new stepdad, Carl. Well, I mean, who can resist a man named Carl? Is is that your... Is that what you would have expected from 90210? No, I don't know what I would have expected exactly, but... 
that's that's a lot. That's a lot of stress yeah. back. Yeah, not that. All right, Mary, do you have a, a trashy point? Did you, in in summary, looking back at season one, do you have any reason to suggest that it's trashy? Yes. Yes, I do. Really? I managed to think of something here without, despite my lack of notes, I managed to come okay. up um, I'd like to talk about Dr. Michael Mancini, uh, who, I mean, you gotta love him because he's a great villain. And uh, Thomas Calabro, is that his name, the actor? Yeah. He plays the <laughs> hell out of this part. He plays the hell out of it and bless him for it. Uh, but sweet Dr. Michael Mancini shows up when this show starts and he is sort of the good hearted, newlywed husband, uh, building make maintenance guy slash surgeon which is an interesting combination. And he's just puttering around and he's fixing the pipes and the showers and he's cleaning the pool. And then it's boring, right? The first 10 episodes or so of the show are, are like a, they're like a sedative. Like it's really hard to watch. And then Dr. Michael Mancini begins his slow heel turn when he meets Dr. Kimberly Shaw. And it's really I know I was thinking about this in the arc of the whole season. And we talk a lot about how an Amanda shows up is really when the foot hits the gas. And I think that's true, but I think having watched this season, now I'd only seen it once before when we watched it a few years ago, it really is the combination of Amanda, Sydney, uh, Kimberly, and then Michael's heel turn because he's really the only original building occupant who goes evil. Like everyone else is relatively themselves going forward but he really turns into a complete raging asshole and that's when we become a soap opera that's when the show kicks into high gear it's when we see amanda starting to stir up the shit is when we see kimberly hooking up with michael we see sydney show up and also want to hook up with michael and it's fun to watch him become the crux of so much drama and i was thinking about the coming seasons and how much more that will come into play and he's just a he's a rascal He's just a rascal. And I forgot how much I like it when this evil part of him comes out because the show gets so much better when he gets evil. You know, in, in rewatching season one, uh, I will never skip season one of Melrose Place whenever I rewatch it. Uh, that may make me not rewatch it, but fine. <laughs> because rewatching it, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that the show got good when Amanda came in. Yeah. And yet there's correlation, not causation, because if you notice the last few episodes, we, we didn't even talk about Amanda for the first half because there was so much going on that was better and interesting that didn't necessarily involve Amanda. Yeah, yeah. Now, Amanda is seasons two, three, four, five, by far and away the star, the, the potster, the drama. But she doesn't ha- she's she's still not at that level yet. But what made this show really kick up for me was was Michael. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's good. And listen, I don't hate Michael like I thought I did. <laughs> but I'll I'll discuss that later. I don't either. I mean, he's a he he becomes a bad guy. I mean, he just does. Like there's but there's something thinking ahead, I was looking at we used to make memes of the show and I was digging in some of the season two ones the other day and 
he just plays it with such a like a little shit-eating grin like he's doing horrible things to people but he's having a blast like the thomas calabro is just having a, a hoot the whole time i can't hate him i mean even if he's doing terrible things because he just does such a great job i don't know my favorite part is coming up i, I forget if it's next season or season three when he returns Joe her stolen baby and is mad at her about it. Just the audacity of Michael Mancini. I hope you're happy I brought your baby back. <laughs> <laughs> my, one of the, oh. I listened to, um, again with this, one of the other Melrose Place podcasts. Yeah. Uh, they're the professionals, right? Like they, oh, they yeah. actually, they're really good. And <laughs> they quoted, just like we did, they noted that in the season finale, Jane, while yelling at... Um, Kimberly says, if you're ever so lucky to get a man of your own, I hope some pathetic bitch comes by and hurts you as much as you've hurt me. <laughs> and they, they read that quote and then just casually mentioned, and that particular hex is visited on the house of Kimberly. And it made me laugh. But you're right. It's because Michael is just, what's he going to do now? It's it's fascinating. It really is. I'm, I've only seen the show through the end of season three and I think a tiny bit of the start of season four. I'm fascinated that he is a character. He apparently stays on the whole time, right? He never leaves. He nope. rides it up. Never. I just, it, just knowing what I know of like Dr. Michael Mancini by season three, I can't imagine what he's like by season seven. I'm so excited to find out. <laughs> hey, he's, he's there for the reboot. Oh, that's right. I forgot about the reboot. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me hit my next point. Are you yes, ready? Yes, please. It, it is titled Life and Stuff. Am I right? <laughs> And I, this is really about the first half of season one. I think they lost this thread. And I think they did it intentionally because nobody wanted to watch it. But the first half, the first 13 episodes, really, of Melrose Place season one really were focused on just day-to-day -day life. We were talking about roommates who are messy, uh, dealing with student loan debt, uh, shopping for hats, what to do with a, an unwanted pregnant or an unplanned pregnancy. Um <laughs> Just everything that normal people deal with in their normal lives, they they were talking about, which did not make for good television. No, no. But I think was was a, an example of high art for the generation. Just here's what's happening. This is this is what life is like in the early '90s. You have to you have to go back home and listen to your answering machine messages to find out if a sexy lady is calling you for your student loans. <laughs> Those are the only ones that call are the sexy ones. <laughs> oh i guess it's kind of a time capsule yeah i guess we have yeah. that throughout the season haven't we there's things that happen where we laugh and go oh that doesn't exist anymore <laughs> yeah like the whole answering machine thing that's unless you're my parents who still have one yeah everybody just has voicemail and they were more realistic right like you know, in later seasons, it, it's probably difficult to tell the difference between the end of 90210 and, and, you know, the middle of Melrose Place, right? It was these people just suddenly have no financial concerns at all, right? But in the beginning, we've got Billy's junky ass dented dirty grill because that's someone has a grill, right? So that's, <laughs> that's, oh, that's great. The parties are just, you know, bring bring your own drink outside. Even Allison's going away party, which was far into the second half, is just a bunch of beer sitting around a fire. Whereas um, in much later episodes, they would just they would go all out right with um, mm. putting them in scenes and scenarios that young 20 somethings in L.A. just would not be able to afford. Sure. 
sure. But it was never okay to just bring a puppy. <laughs> Don't buy someone else a puppy. Don't do it. I, unless you have permission or something. But even then, I feel like the person should go get their own puppy. <laughs> they should be involved in that process more than you are. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mary, this is definitely wrapping up to be a shorter episode. Do you want to take a break or do you want to just keep going? We can take a break. Okay. Uh, good listeners, we'll be back. All right. <laughs> this season of the Melrose Place cast has been generously sponsored by Dr. Shaw's Marriage Counseling. It's true. One way in, two doors out. Dr. Shaw has been with us for a long time, and she'll continue to be here to help you break up and end your marriage. There's so many reasons you're going to want to end your marriage. It could be because, as we discussed, marriage absolutely sucks. It could be because your marriage is making you a boring character, so therefore you don't get screen time. Mm. And it could just be because she wants on your man. Either way, Dr. Shaw's Marriage Counseling on the corner of Mulholland and Vine will be there for you. Should you be jealous? Probably. <laughs> what a! am just so grateful we've had such a steady sponsorship. You know, it's the only thing steady about Dr. Shaw. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and do you know, I really think not only do we owe some gratitude towards Dr. Kimberly Shaw for her marriage counseling services, I think Melrose Place season one owes Dr. Shaw's approach to marriage a huge thank you because it made the show better. <laughs> it got a lot better once Dr. Shaw showed up and started working her special relationship magic. Yeah, and by that, you, in, I think in the first episode, she was referred to as Kim. I don't think they had decided to go full Kimberly yet. No, but she's such a Kimberly. Like, she's she's totally a Kimberly. This makes sense. This makes sense. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Listen, she's here for you, but not your husband. <laughs> <sighs> And we are back for the second half of the season one review episode of the Melrose Place cast, uh, where Mary and I are discussing the entirety of season one as its own work of art or trash. I'm Tej here with Mary. And Mary, I have an email to read. Ooh, how exciting. All right. A fan message. Now, you'll remember the first fan email we got was taking me to task for saying Kelly Kapowski. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. The second fan email we got was someone offering us transcription services. It was a very kind offer. <laughs> the th 10 free minutes. <laughs> we never did cash that in, did we? Not yet. The, <laughs> the, the third email. All right. Uh, it is from our, our good friend named Pam. Okay. Subject, episode two, Melrose Place. I'm sure since this is from last year, you're aware, but Kelly from 90210 is not Kelly Kapowski. That's Kelly from Saved by the Bell, played by Tiffany Thiessen. And Mary, here's what I would like to tell our good friend Pam. Mm -hmm. 
as was discussed earlier this episode, Tiffany Amber Thiessen did not show up on Melrose Place. So I believe, Pam, your story doesn't check out. I don't know how, but I've gotten confused. <laughs> well, so she's saying Kelly Kapowski was played by Tiffany Thiessen. But that's yep. not true because T- Tiffany Amber Thiessen never made it to Melrose Place. She was on 90210. Oh, now I'm catching up. Okay. Not Kelly from 90210. That was, that was uh, what, something Garth? What's her name? I don't, I never watched that. Jenny Garth. Jenny Garth. <laughs> no. In all seriousness, Pam, yes, I'm aware. Kelly Kapowski is from Saved by the Bell. It was uh, apparently a very poor attempt at humor that Mary, I suspect, <laughs> will get by email a few times a year as new people just kind of stumble across the podcast. I really, and I will read it every time. I hope that they do. I, I almost want to encourage my friends to email that even without listening. <laughs> just because I know how excited you get. <laughs> Listen, if, if I get an email from marysdad at gmail.com, I will know. Oh my God, you would love every minute of it. <laughs> he well, would- Mary, would you like to make... Oh, go ahead. He wouldn't even know what he was writing. I'd have to type it for him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's okay. Would you like to make a second point? Yes, I would. Uh, So I was giving this some thought. And I think in terms of trash, I don't know if this is really trashy, but it's an observation slash criticism. I think they definitely miscast Billy. And I was listening to one of our previous episodes and I think they should have swapped and they should have had Billy play Jake and Jake should have played Billy because, and we talked about this the other day, I've been thinking about this, Andrew Shu, I think, could have gotten away with playing a Jake because Jake, I don't want to say he's dumb, but he's not book smart. Uh, and <laughs> Billy's character is supposed to be this sort of well-read, he went to college, I, I pre- it seems like they're implying he was an English major or something adjacent. And whenever Andrew Shu talks about how he loves Ernest Hemingway and stuff, it it is totally unbelievable. And it, he cannot play this because he just, nothing about him says that. Either way, the way he acts or in his personal carrying of himself. And I think that Grant Show could have pulled that off. I think because he's got a quieter energy, he's got a little more of like a, I don't know. I feel like you look at, if you look at the two of them, <laughs> Andrew Shu, it's like there's not a lot going on behind the eyes a lot of the time. And I feel like with Grant Cho, he could have played somebody who sort of sits and reads books and, I don't know, has lived some life. I don't know. I, I think the show messed up there. And I think it creates problems in the in the structure of the season because, like we've said, Allison and Billy as characters are not that different, really. They're about, I mean, they're the same age. They both went to college. They both have had pretty relatively similar, like, suburban middle-class lives. And I don't know. I just, there's something that could have been cooked better in this, in this jello. Billy was a bit, Billy was just not, he's, he's just not good. No, no. And I, I go back and forth and I, sometimes I question how much of my distaste for Billy is the actor playing Billy and that I don't find it believable or Listen, I'm not an actor, but I don't find that to be particularly well acted compared to some of the other characters. Or if I just don't like the concept of Billy in general. I, I don't know. I can't really separate the two. 
and it's, it's not clear if they're trying to you know they yeah they have his story his backstory all jumbled right because and sometimes they they play him as this typical jock that's always playing soccer and sometimes they try you know he, he they play him like he's the type of person that would love to sleep with all the great authors in history and and then amanda on their their walking date asked him who he wanted to be in life and he said some like john belushi yeah <laughs> what yes. well my one of my favorite lines of the whole season and I'm probably going to mess this up a little, was when he said, Emily Dickinson, that I knew, it. <laughs> I knew it, I knew it. And I'm like, I just, he doesn't, he can't pull that off. He can't pull off the moments when they're trying to make it like he's this semi-intellectual writer person because he just can't pull it off. He's either, he's just not good enough of an actor to do it. And it's, I don't know. Or maybe the solution would have been instead of swapping who played which role, maybe Billy should have lived alone and Allison should have had to share a place with Jake just because they're different. I don't know. Maybe the contrast would have been better. Maybe it would have been a more interesting dynamic. I don't know. But Oh, and do you know what else would have been an interesting dynamic hmm. is how Sandy would have felt about Jake living with Allison. Yeah. Oh, that could have put some juice on the fire there, too. Yeah. You know, I feel like, yeah, there's stuff that's in this pot that if they had kind of slowed down a little and looked at what ingredients they were putting in, it might have made a little bit better show, especially for that first half of the season, because, man, that's a drag. Yeah, I'll I'll concede your point. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I've, I've one last point for why season one counts as high art for the generations. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. Mary, I don't mean to catch you off guard with this one. I don't mean to come out of left field. <laughs> oh, boy. But I think Melrose Place made it perfectly clear for generations to come that marriage absolutely sucks. God. Oh, <laughs> they got it. Here's you, There's there's four four points for this that I have. First, Michael just outright says it. You know, marriage is not a natural situation for people to be in. It is a sign uh, fidelity is a sign of commitment because specifically because it's not natural. Right. But you know, the way he talks to Billy and Jake about like, yeah, you know, when you get married, nothing changes. You still want to go sleep with anyone you can. And you know, <laughs> what does that make you so bad? You know, she's a doctor. What do you want me to do? <laughs> but second half of season one, Michael really starts to run up against the, the, the familiarity of the marriage breeds, which some people enjoy. That's fine. Those people, whatever. But, um, <laughs> Michael really, really ca captures one particular problem with uh, marriage. The next person that captures a problem with marriage is Jane Mancini, who demonstrates the problems when you put when you rely entirely on one other person's decision making for your life going according to plan, uh, it, your personal happiness, your sense of self-worth. You can't put that on one person. That is a bad idea. Because uh, it's entirely out of your control, and but that's what that's what our society's definition of marriage tells you tells you to do. And Jane demonstrates what can go wrong when that happens. Specifically, your husband may come home with a sandy shoe, <laughs> and not sandy shoe. To be clear, that's to be clear. <laughs> We're talking a lot about Sandy this episode. Well, she was here. She was a main character. Yeah, that's fine. She was. She was there more than puppy. 
<laughs> More than Rhonda, I think. Oh. Speaking of Rhonda, I think Rhonda also demonstrates why marriage absolutely sucks. Oh my God. <laughs> Even though she gave in in the end, she was a holdout and she's a feminist and everything. But she, I think, correctly identifies the fear that uh, marriage is genuinely when you jump into it it is a huge life change that will have an impact maybe not a a final impact but will have an impact on all of your relationships with everybody else you can't bring one person into a, a, a place of primacy and not have other people that filled your life moved around a little bit or a lot and i think uh rhonda conveyed that very well and specifically when she when she broke up with Terrence or ended the engagement uh, while they were picking out their invitations, just that this is a big deal and it's not something to be entered into lightly and you have to be prepared. It doesn't just mean you're solidifying your relationship with one other person. You are changing your relationship with everybody else. I believe you may have heard me say all friendships are destined to fail after someone gets married and maybe I need to back off on that, but... <laughs> I I think I would stand behind a revised version of that point, which is all relationships that you have with other people are destined to change after you get married. I think that's probably fair. Yeah. And change for the, for the worst. They're going to end. It's over. No, give it up. Oh, that's not. Okay. Um, well, I have one other, one other person that demonstrates that marriage sucks. Uh, Michael's doctor friend, Scott. I mean, I would argue it sucked a little more for his wife than for Scott. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Don't. No, 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 no. Don't make me come off bad in this. I look forward to wherever you're going with this. <laughs> I, yeah, I will agree that marriage was much worse for the wife. Certainly. But Dr. Scott really demonstrated, uh, I thought, an example of why marriage sucks. Or Melrose Place used Dr. Scott to demonstrate it, which is the sense of obligation you have in a marriage leads people to stick around in situations that they should not stick around in anymore. She, if they were not married, she would not have been with him anymore, but there's the sense of, um, and I do think it was stronger 30 years ago, but there's the sense of if you leave a marriage, it's a, you're a fail. It's not that your marriage failed or didn't last or that it lasted. It was great until it was over. It's that you are a failure. You did something wrong. Even if you literally have bruises all over your body or your husband is Michael Mancini sleeping with every doctor he can find and even eyeing up Matt from time to time, all of it. If you leave that marriage, you're deemed a failure. And I, I think um, those four points together are what I think Melrose Place was pointing to when they said marriage absolutely sucks and people should not do it. We should rescind marriage. Oh, I like the way you uh, juxtapose Jane and Rhonda's situations as regards marriage because um, I get the impression that Jane and Michael got married pretty young and pretty fast. At least mm-hmm. the, what I've heard. And Rhonda is certainly not old, but I would say she's probably, what, about 25, 26 maybe a dabbled. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that storyline was effective because it showed her having, as Matt would say, cold feet about her cold feet. And I liked the way the show handled that because I think it was true to her character to like slam on the brakes and go, Oh, I don't like this. No, like, no, no more. We're not doing this now. And I do get the sense that her partnership with Terrence, especially going forward after that, after they broke up and then got back together, 
was probably much more of an egalitarian situation than Jane and Michael. Because <laughs> um, I think Rhonda is just so much more of an assertive character and more confident in herself. Jane is really so wishy-washy and so weak in almost every respect that I think that's why that situation got so frustrating to watch too, because she was just, it's such a bland character and <laughs> there's nothing much to latch on to. So I don't know. I'm hopeful for Rhonda and Terrence. I think by comparison, but well, if anyone compared to Michael and Shane is going to do better. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. No, I don't know. No, but I don't, I don't agree that marriage is a terrible trap for everyone. Having not been married. <laughs> My lack of expertise. But I don't know. Well, I think Melrose Place made the case that it is. And I think they were right. Listen, Melrose Place is certainly not pro-marriage. Well, it's because it's a soap opera. Like, no mar- no soap opera is pro-marriage. That happen <laughs> after a while because... If everyone's married and they're all happily married, there's no drama. <laughs> I think you just proved my point. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's high art. <laughs> uh, we're both all right. right. Uh, <laughs> well, I I have one more trashy thing I'd like to bring up. Okay, let's Overact- go. It doesn't overact the entire season, but most of the back half. And that is the really annoying love triangle between... Billy, Allison, and Amanda. Uh, We've talked about this previously. Um, Frankly, both of these women are too good for Billy. Uh, I've been on the record saying that before. Amanda is far too good for Billy. I don't understand. I mean, I do, because it's a soap opera. I get why they put these three people in this situation. It's because the inherent awkwardness of Allison kind of liking Billy and Billy liking Allison. But then he hooks up with Amanda, who's her boss, and then he still lives with Allison. They did it all for the tension of the show, but it's so annoying to watch because it's just not satisfying to see him hook up with either one of these people at this point because they dragged on the will they won't they with Allison for my God, how many was it 30 episodes before they finally slept together? It's crazy. Like they way too long. And then when he's with Amanda, all I can do is sit and think like, girl, you could do better. Like, you could do so much better than this guy. And I think I would have had more patience with it if the show had played it like Amanda just wanted to hook up hook up with him because he's hot and has good abs. Sure, I could have gone with that. Like, that makes sense. But then she would talk about him like they were like special soulmates and she loved his intellect. I'm like, he has no intellect. Like, this is so stupid. Yeah, I... I... I get why it's there. I think it's it's because it's a soap opera. That's why this is there. I wish there had been a way, and maybe this comes back to the Andrew Shue of it all, like if it were a better actor that they were fighting over who could have played this in a way where I would understand why these two pretty bright and ambitious women are like, yeah, this is the guy I want to get with. Like, I don't understand. I'm never going to understand that. Ugh. Yeah, I can't pin that <laughs> triumvirate as high art. I'm gonna have to let that go. Oh, I'm glad that by the end of this season, at least, like we're kind of done with the Amanda and him. At least, if I remember right, going forward, that doesn't. I feel like it resurges at one point, but it never comes back like it was. I think that's right. 
Oh God, and Keith is back. I already forgot. Oh. <laughs> I thought he was wrapped. I thought I thought they uh, did him in at the end of season one. I did too. I don't know why. Well, like we've talked about, I think on the last episode, this whole last part of the season was like I really think they missed the opportunity. Like the fact that they revealed Michael's affair right before the finale, and that Allison and Billy slept together the first time right before, like they kind of popped the balloon ahead of time. And then we just sort of whimpered into the end. And I don't know. You know, that makes me think we talked about this a couple episodes that maybe television, television was different back in the nineties, but no, they ended season three with the bombing. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think the way they, they took the high drama moments and burned them in episodes 30 and 31 tells me that they hadn't fully given up on this being a, a story about real life. They they certainly amped up the drama. They they put in more awkward situations. But it was still, nothing has yet become unrealistic, right? W- which is what's going to happen when Kimberly goes to her, you know, empowerment <laughs> camp and Sydney joins a cult and, you know, th- things, things spin off the, the wheels. But I wonder, when I think about it, in just the normal drama of life, what's the more dramatic moment that's going to impact you for the rest of your life? Is it when you find out that your husband is having an affair? Or is it that when you find out after attempting to reconcile, you can't and you are genuinely going to file for a divorce? I think the divorce is the bigger, more life-changing one. But the the opening the door at Kimberly's apartment and seeing Michael naked is the more trashy moment so i think they were still trying to be high art oh i hadn't thought about it that way all right that's a good point i'll I'll conclude that yeah yeah well mary i think this wraps us up for season one. Oh my god what a long journey it's been <laughs> how are you feeling about season one on the whole um you know i'm glad we, we watched it i'm glad we stuck through it um it's good to see where the characters that I know, I know them in their future versions of themselves, where they come from. I really had forgotten, and I forgotten it twice apparently, about the Amanda, Billy, Allison love triangle. Um, so, it, you know, the, the constant tension in the next couple of years between Amanda and Allison at work just makes so much more sense. <laughs> yeah, that kind of does put a different spin on it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I believe the saddest like start to finish storyline is going to be Kimberly Shaw's. And it's, you know, it was jarring to see her in the first episode. I think she came in at episode 10 or whatever, just, you know, almost this happy go lucky doctor, you know, just hanging out with her bud. Yeah. Yeah. And very like a normal person, like, like a normal person who would be your doctor. But but a little bad because she's got a tattoo somewhere you'd never get somewhere between her shoulder and her ankle, <laughs> which is all of Michael's favorite parts. <laughs> oh, Michael, that rascal! Well, Mary, we should tell the tell the listeners about what next week's episode is going to be. We should. I, it sounds like maybe I should remind you as well. <laughs> I remember half of it. <laughs> <laughs> So Mary and I, we're taking one more week to soak in season one before we move on to season two. Uh, And we are doing an episode titled, Oh, Really? (laughs) 
So as you know, my argument has been that Melrose Place counts as high art for the generations, and Mary's has been that this is just a trashy soap opera. So we are going to, for each other, find and assign to each other an episode from season one that uh, the other person will have to listen to and then come back and really justify it as high art or a trashy soap opera. So for example, what I'm going to do is go back and find the episode from season one that I think is the most high art for the generations and put it before Mary. She'll rewatch it and she'll have a short amount of time next week to tell us why, even though it's clearly high art, she thinks it's trashy. And then she'll do the same and we'll see what we think. Boy, I bet our opinions will really change. (laughs) Mary, Mary, do you have, that's not, that's never the purpose of debate. (laughs) Mary, do you know what, what episode you're going to assign? I have a couple of thoughts, but I need to narrow it down. I, ha- I have oh, mine well, ready. you're much more prepared than I am. <laughs> are you assigning it to me now, or are we doing this later? <laughs> I'm going to assign okay. it to you now. If, if, you're, if you're not ready, Let you can wait. Let me get a piece of paper <laughs> so I write it down, or I'll forget. All right, I'm ready. Mary. Oh, really? The challenge for you is season one, episode eight, the Lonely Hearts, where we find lily pads growing in the pool. I want you to rewatch that and come back and sh- tell us why that is trashy. Because I think it is the highest of art. Are you sure that's the one you want to pick? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. I can, I can do that. Yeah. God, maybe I should just pick the same one and send it back at you. <laughs> That is not was that was not on your list. <laughs> All right. Well, I will. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't prepared to announce this during the podcast, but uh, I will. I will communicate with you off camera, off microphone. <laughs> okay. It it'll be a surprise for our listeners when I show up next oh, week. God. Oh my god, they're going to be so excited. <laughs> we have a part, okay. right? We're doing another thing. Uh, uh, is that week or a different week? No, that's right. Yes. So the, the next week's bonus episodes, uh, we have another bonus episode coming out in a few days, the round of send off. Okay. So this week, t- today, you're getting the season one wrap up. In a few days, you'll get the round of send off mini episode like we did with Sandy. Next week, Monday, you will hear the Oh Really Challenge. And then finally, the the mini episode, the, the in a week and a half, we're going to review the best and the worst of our sp- uh, podcast sponsors. I mean, of course, we're grateful to all of our sponsors. And we ch- all of them. Even Super We treasure Galleria. their contributions ever so much. But yes, I'm looking forward to uh, refreshing my memory about our, our many lucrative sponsors throughout season one and mm-hmm. and talking about why we love them so much. We're, listen, we're going to play the best and talk about them just a little <laughs> bit more. So... You have that to look forward we're to. We're going to be well. giving you content well into the month of August at the rate we're going. <laughs> it's just our season one wrap ups. <laughs> After that, so in two weeks, you'll hear us on season two. I say two weeks. The majority of people that ever listen to this are going to do so at some point in the next five years, right? We, do, we don't have a live active <laughs> listener base. If the, God help us if there's another pandemic, I think our listenership's really going to explode. <laughs> People have some time on their hands. They're going to be all over this. All right. 
Well, this is the end of season oh one. My God. We're over. It's it's an exciting time to be alive and to be looking forward to season two. And I I feel a little sorry for you because I feel like after season one, it's going to get harder for you to convince this is high art. But already trying. <laughs> Mary, we are twelve and a half percent done with this podcast. Wow, that's more than I thought. But again, as I've talked about many times, I'm very bad at math. Public service announcement. Lost dog. It's still lost. Small white dog adopted recklessly by one former 20-something to give to another (laughs) something as a gift. Might respond to the name puppy, Barney, or simply dog. (laughs) Although usually he just keeps running no matter what you say. Puppy, who is by now 30 years old, was last seen on the beach or maybe out in the courtyard of the building they lived in, or possibly by the trash can. The dog walker really wasn't paying attention to anything but themselves, and they took the dog's leash off. Please notice that reward on the sign is in quotation marks. If found, please visit, and this website is still active, www.findpuppyjimmybarneydog.org to report your sighting on our online form. Please help us find this poor, lost little plot device who's been lost for 30 years. Uh, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> 30, 30 years ago? 30 years. Mary, do you, are we looking for a live dog? I think in the world of the show, yes. Yes, this dog is still alive. So they, they've not given up hope on Puppy. No, no. Sandy in particular has never given up hope about Puppy. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask, uh, who, who, do you, who is it that you think is still looking around for Puppy? I think uh, whenever Sandy is free from working on the soap opera out in New York, she flies back to Los Angeles. She gets to that beach and she just walks around going, puppy, puppy. I I think she yells puppy four times and a Southern accent fades with each one. (laughs) You know, you know who's not looking for puppy? Who? Jake, but I'm not going to say why. Why? He's not even looking for his kid. Oh, what was the kid's name? I can't remember. David? Barney? Puppy? (laughs) Jake, you know who else doesn't know? (laughs) Listen, he mailed him that something once, right? Wasn't he mailing him something? Yeah, he sent him a a toy. It was a remote control car, wasn't it? You know what? They should have held on to that remote-controlled car, taken it to the beach, and driven it around because maybe it would have gotten Puppy's attention. Here are my notes from that episode. (laughs) Trying to see if I got the kid's name. (laughs) Jake. An old girlfriend is in town. Jake has a kid. Mom wants an adoption. Jake wants to be dad. Quote, they're not a family. Asshole. Jake sees his kid. Jake tells Joe he wants to get custody. Joe, have you thought about the expense? (laughs) Jake, quote, I want things that don't fit together. And then the next thing proves that point because Jake dips fries in mayo. Oh. I don't know the kid's name. I think it was David. Who is that other kid Billy thought was his kid for that week? Marvin? <laughs> Martin? <laughs> they like Martin. Comic books. Yeah. What was Yeah, no, for, for a little while there, Billy had his own family. That you went exactly where I was going. Good job. Oh, what a wonderful program this is. But again, now let me ask you this. Yeah. 
If Amanda had owned the building already, how do you think she would have reacted to Sandy saying, just sneak the puppy in? (laughs) I feel like Amanda would have had the dog catcher just come and take puppy. And you know what? It might have been for the best for puppy because at least he would have gone to a home that could handle him. I really, I really wish Sandy had met uh, Amanda. Oh, those two would have been fun together. Do you know, I don't, oh, Rhonda did meet Amanda because Rhonda was at Billy's birthday or promotion celebration. Oh, yeah, that's right. We never saw them together, though, did we? Only, only in that moment in that group shot. Oh, that's different. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I don't know if they would have gotten along. I feel like they would have gotten along, but I feel like they wouldn't have gone past just being acquaintances. I think that's right. Well, hey, listen, find that puppy. Find puppy. Find puppy. It's, it's. About time, for God's sake. Bring back our puppy. Puppy Jimmy Barney Dog. Dot org. Bring back our puppies. <laughs> so, wait, seriously, how, how long does this show go on? How many episodes are there? <laughs> wait, I told you this, right? So it goes to season seven of the original run, but then there's the, re- the reboot season. So there's how many reboot seasons? Just the one so far. So far, okay. but there's also, but then Mary, there's the the Amazon has the true story of Melrose Place movie that we should cover. Oh God, how long? Yeah, and and uh, Models Inc has to be covered too. Wait, what the hell is Models Inc? It, it's a two season spinoff of what? What do they? Of, of Melrose Place from the lady from Dynasty was on it, I think. The lady from Dynasty, my God, this was like a whole industry. And I do think 90210, to get to understand where this show came from, is probably worth exploring. I, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> and then when Allison left, she went to Allie McBeal. Does it have anything to do with the contents of Melrose Place? I just feel like, how, do you really want to be an expert in this or not? I mean, I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> okay, so we're in for all of it. Oh, God. 